This is A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. This is the third of a five-part series of programmes from the Starmus Science and Art Festival in Zurich, produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Today, we'll talk to Dave Eicher, the historian and author, and Brian May, the legendary, chart-topping, platinum-selling astrophysicist, about finding a new dimension to the Apollo programme and the cultural resonance of NASA's moonshots. We feel that space adventure is something that should bring us all together, but the only reason we got to the moon was because of that extraordinarily fierce competition. And I think the politicians saw it as something very serious, something like a war, but the people saw it as some kind of beautiful game. We'll consider the etiquette of answering that phone call from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. But then and there was this like beeping noise and I'm holding on to my husband going, oh my God, it's October 2nd and it's a call from Sweden at five <laughs> in the morning. This could be the Nobel Prize. This is too amazing. And we'll find out about Kaspersky's new partnership with the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Centre at Star City in Russia. That's all coming up on A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller. My guests now are David Iker and Brian May, authors of Mission Moon 3D. Welcome both. David, I'll get you to introduce the book first, because like anybody who sets out to tell the story of Apollo 11... 50 years on, you're telling a story that everybody knows the details of, and everyone, I think, knows the names of the the three astronauts involved. How do you find a way to tell the story afresh or find a different way to narrate it? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, the book surrounds the imagery uh, that Brian and, and our collaborators put together that gives you this new and unique stereo view of, of the Apollo program and of the space race before and after. But it's really a narrative uh, that we bolstered talking to some of the astronauts today with some stories, despite the voluminous literature that were new and fresh that we got from them about their experiences and what they felt at various times. And it's also a narrative that's not just about Apollo. It goes back to the origins of the space race, the tremendous Cold War uh, rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, and time after Apollo that goes all the way up through the 1980s and to the present, even with unmanned missions, uh, some imagery there too. And it really talks not just about the space race, but about culture and society and music, rock and roll, and everything that was going on that made that a unique time, from Vietnam to Watergate to uh, Woodstock to Live Aid. I want to come back to that because the cultural context and historical and political context surrounding the Apollo missions are, of course, fascinating. But you mentioned the visuals, which are a distinguishing part of Mission Moon 3D. And, and Brian, this is where I will ask you to do the absolutely appalling thing of attempting to explain a visual concept in an audio medium. Easy. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what is different about these photographs? What's different is a normal mono photograph, which you see in a book is the equivalent of putting your hand over one eye, which I'm doing at this moment, and looking at the world with with just one eye. Everything's flat. You don't get that information of depth and solidity, which you do in in real life. So what stereo does is uh, give you back that sensation of reality. 
it's been kind of adopted and adapted, if you like, to, to become virtual reality. But stereoscopy is the beginning of it all, and it started in 1832 with, with, with uh, Charles Wheatstone, who discovered this whole principle of stereopsis. So basically what you're going to get in the moon, Mission Moon 3D book is an experience which you couldn't get anywhere else. It's much more evocative. You will feel like you're on the moon and you can see these guys and you were there with them. David, I wanted to go back to that point you raised earlier about how Mission Moon frames the Apollo missions in the, in the context of the times, which down here on Earth were fairly turbulent times. Where does it strike you that the relationship is? Does it strike you as all part of the spirit of that decade that, that man would decide to go to the moon to do this impossible thing? Or does the Apollo mission sort of orbit spiritually as well as literally above the chaos down below? No, I think you hit it exactly right with the way you phrased that. And that's, I think, what Brian and I felt, is you really can't disentangle the Apollo effort from those unique times that were going on uh, during the 60s. I mean, I was, I was a young kid at the time, but even I could sense, you know, the, the turbulence, the angst, you know, the, the Vietnam uh, news reportage nightly, the assassinations, the scandals in the White House then that eventually uh, came out. I mean, it was a, a terrible time in many ways, and Apollo provided that unique moment uh, in time, not only for science, but to bring the world together. And that's a really important story to tell, that despite all this negativity and horror, there are great unparalleled achievements in human history that can be made if we work together. Brian, did it strike you at the time that there was a parallel there, that there was this great extraordinary surge in, in scientific knowledge and understanding represented by the Apollo missions? And of course, there was that great extraordinary surge and progression in rock and roll of the 1960s. As somebody who was pursuing both interests, did it strike you that there was any kind of overlap? No. <laughs> That's no, a, but a I, theory swiftly debunked there. No, no, but I'm intrigued by this whole kind of um, paradox that we feel that space adventure is something that should bring us all together, but the only reason we got to the moon was because of that extraordinarily fierce competition. And I heard Buzz say yesterday 400,000 people in America took part in that amazing thrust which which pushed things forward much faster than anyone could have imagined and it was because of the competition and I think the politicians saw it as something very serious something like a war mm. but the people saw it as some kind of beautiful game and I think that applies to most of the astronauts as well and you notice that Neil Armstrong he goes to the moon he takes an American flag plants it in the soil he doesn't say this is one small step for uh, a man, you know, giant step for the USA. Mm. He says, for mankind, you know, and I think that uh, that's a feeling common in, in the astronauts. And as David point, points out in the book, that the Russian cosmonauts and the American astronauts quite early on wanted to communicate, even though it was kind of verboten at the time. They wanted to get together because they were sharing these wonderful experiences. And Alexei comes up with a very poignant story when that terrible fire happened, which put paid to Apollo 1, the information was there in Russia which would have prevented that. They didn't cross-pollinate, and Alexei has, has always said to us, what a tragedy that we weren't 
communicating to each other, the tragedies that could be avoided. David, when you're putting together a book like this, is there any melancholy attached to the fact that a lot of the Apollo programs, I think, are now regarded with a a measure of nostalgia, that we look back as this extraordinary accomplishment of, of putting people on the moon and bringing them back as something we did half a century ago and then sort of stopped doing, and now we don't do it anymore. Extraordinary things are still done, obviously, in space exploration, especially in unmanned space exploration, but it doesn't have anything like the same purchase on the popular imagination, does it? It does not, and, and I think it's, it's really tragic, and you're right, melancholy, that, that such a, an effort really grew out of uh, total competition. My rocket is bigger than your rocket, um, and we're going to run these guys into the ground and vice versa. And really, um, you know, it's terribly sad that now 50 years on, no one has been back to the moon. It, it's so valuable scientifically to understand the moon and its relationship to us and the solar system at large. And what's really compelling about the future now with the privatization of space and with, with the glimpses of what might happen is that the next steps are going to have to be international cooperations because they're going to be so ambitious if we're talking about getting back to the moon and using it as a base to go on to Mars, for example. Just a final thought then, Brian, which I guess is a a congruent one to this event, Starmus, and that is a a portmanteau term of of, of stars and, and music. Is there a role that art can play, do you think, in reinvigorating or even invigorating excitement in the space program? Or, or is it your sense that artists, though many have tried in all media, have not yet quite found the language to express what an extraordinary accomplishment this is and what it could still potentially mean for us? I don't think art is, I don't think that's the mission of art to do that. But I think that art and science, as demonstrated by Starmus, absolutely do go together and really pollinate each other and uh, generate excitement and imagination. And I think they highlight the fact that the greatest science and the greatest art are actually very similar, born of very similar processes. It's like stepping outside the box and asking questions that nobody else does. So I feel that the whole ethos of Starmus has been validated by what's happened in these last five festivals yeah i don't think art has to explain science to people no i don't think that's its role but i do think that we are now past this point which i suffered from as a kid which is like you can do art or you could do science you can't do them both you know there's there's a big gulf between them it's not true you can be a complete human being you can be excited by the stars you can make music you can paint pictures it's all part of being a human being and it seems like we're here for that kind of reason to explore our potential. That's a, a partial answer, actually, to the, the follow-up question I wanted to jam in there, which is that you're, you're quite right. It's usually seen as this dichotomy that art is all flashes of inspiration and is inexplicable and ineffable, whereas science is all method and logic and reason. But has it been your personal experience that there's elements of both of those in, in each realm? Absolutely, yeah. And it's epitomised by someone like Matt Taylor, who's the PI of the Rosetta mission, who's the biggest heavy metal freak I've ever met in my life. <laughs> he has more, more tattoos than anyone I've met in my business. You know, on, on his right breast is um, Lemmy, and on his, his other <laughs> chest, the side of his chest, is um, Einstein. And he's massively passionate. You, you need to see this guy do his lectures. And it all comes out. You know, he's, he's a man who, um, who feels everything very passionately, and that's what's got him where he is. He doesn't let himself be bound by rules or conventions. 
So we all need to be in touch clearly more with our inner Lemmy and our inner Einstein. That's a good way of um, <laughs> putting or, it. Up. Order of priority to be determined. Um, David Iker and Brian May, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, at the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. And I'm joined now by Aldo Delbo, Head of Global Partnership and Sponsorship at Kaspersky, which I guess is the obvious place to come in with Kaspersky's partnership with Starmus. What is it that excites Kaspersky about the partnership? Why Starmus? Uh, well, it is now part of a long journey because we started uh, three years ago. And we've started basically having our CEO, Eugene Kaspersky, excited about Starmuth itself and, uh, and the guy that is managing uh, the whole uh, event, uh, Garrick, that is a quite strange uh, and, of course, extremely fascinating character. Starmuth is about space and uh, our company that is on this planet serving uh, the security space of this uh, planet since 22 years, uh, it's all about space as well. That is uh, physical, can be logical, you know, the space that you have or you live uh, on your PC or Mac or whatever other device that represents your life uh, that now in 2019 must be projected into the outer space, mm. not just on this planet, out of this planet. Well, that, that does bring us around nicely to what Kaspersky is announcing this week. This is the partnership with the Gagarin Research and Cosmonaut Training Centre at Star City in yep. Russia. How is that partnership going to work? What, what will Kaspersky be putting into it and what do you expect to get out of it? Well, uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, during this uh, Starmus uh, event uh, is that people are desperately now looking for a secure space uh, out of the planet that we call our planet. So one of the things that uh, companies like our company will be involved in in the next future is to secure the system to reach these planets. It can be uh, the moon again, it can be Mars, it can be something else, uh, uh, wherever it would be possible for this space that we call human to go and live uh, you know, in, a, in a decent way outside the planet that unfortunately we are going to destroy uh, with our own uh, uh, resources. That is a terrible thing to say because, you know, we are also involved in different projects uh, and we are looking at what is going to happen in, uh, with some prediction, of course. We are here to secure the people's digital space, but at the same time to warn people about what is going to happen. At the same time, working on the future in terms of uh, technical uh, and technicalities that the IT industry can involve to help people to secure their journey for the next generations. Aldo Delbo from Kaspersky, thank you for joining us. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, from the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. I'm joined now by Donna Strickland, winner of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physics for her work on the development of chirped pulse amplification. Uh, Donna, there are quite a few Nobel Prize winners gathered here at Starmus this week, which does provide a rare occasion to ask a question which I think often goes unasked when the Nobel Prizes are discussed, which is, what are the mechanics of that? How do you find out you've actually won the thing, and what does that do to the rest of your day? 
Yes, it is. It was a total surprise to me. And so it's always uh, they announce, they don't announce it, they try to get a hold of the winners at 11 a.m. Swedish time. So it just depends on where you are in the world at 11 a.m. Swedish time. So that's 5 a.m. for us on the East Coast in North America. <laughs> uh, and it's very, it's scary because when you get cold out of bed, you know, you think it's a problem. You never think it's, it's a good it's thing. It's rarely good news. It's rarely good hour. news in the middle of the night. So. Yeah, so they called. Now, it was uh, unfortunate that first it was my husband that picked up the phone. It was the landline, and uh, I sort of woke up screaming, what's wrong? And they said, oh, <laughs> they're asking for Professor Strickland. And I went, oh, my, you know, so even then you think maybe it's a fire in the lab. And so I take the phone, and they said, uh, it's an important call from Sweden. Please stay on the line. So, so at that point, you're taking kind of a deep breath, I guess. Yeah, well, and then, but then and there was this, like, beeping noise, and I'm holding on to my husband going, oh, my God, it's October 2nd, and it's a call from Sweden at 5 <laughs> in the morning. This could be the Nobel Prize. This is too amazing. But then they didn't actually come back online. So, and I waited, because I'm such a rule follower, I waited 15 minutes and went, okay, this, something's wrong, or it's a horrible prank. So then I checked my email and found out it said, Please call us. We can't reach you. Because <laughs> I, you know, they, obviously something had been disconnected. But then it was from the Royal Swedish Academy. So then I knew that it had to be uh, the Nobel Prize. How easy or difficult is it to take in being told that at a moment like that? Is it one of those things where all you can see is bright lights and all you can hear is loud noises? Or, 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 or are you able to make sense of it reasonably quickly? Well, I mean, I think just, there are always things to be done, right? And they had said, can you be on press conference at 6 a.m. And I said, okay, because I didn't really think I had a choice, right? And yet I was the only one of the three on it. So the other two had said no for whatever reasons they had to say no. And so then there's just the practicality of it because it was like 5.15 when I talked to them. By 6, I'm supposed to be on a press conference. And even though it was over the radio and not uh, me being seen, I felt I needed to be dressed. I felt like I needed, you know, and I, so I asked my husband to make coffee and get some breakfast and I, you know, showered and changed. And so by then, next thing you know, it's 6 o'clock and it, they're talking to me. Then, of course, your phone just rings. Ding, 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 ding. Like the cell phone just goes ding, 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 ding. And you watch the emails coming in on the computer. And uh, somebody from the university has, you know, finally woke up at 7 in the morning and found out that it was a Waterloo person. I'm the first person from the University of Waterloo to win a Nobel Prize. So they're not sitting there (laughs) waiting to see, hear the announcements. And they luckily came and said, okay, we're taking over all media requests. You can stop that. Because you're sitting there going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. They're coming in faster than I can answer. And, and so, yeah, it is crazy. And at the same time, we were having our bathroom redone. So by <laughs> 7.30 in the morning, I had the plumbers there telling me they had to turn the water off. I had my neighbor there with this beautiful bouquet of flowers. I had a photographer from Reuters in my house. And I had some other reporter on the phone. And, you know, and next thing you know, I don't have water in the house because I said, yeah, okay, I turn off the water. And when I went in for the press conference at the university, I go to make some lunch and some coffee and realize I can't even make coffee because I've shut the water off without, <laughs> you know, making sure I had water. And the, yeah, so it's just kind of like, it just goes like this and it's but, just but crazy. Uh, other than all that, a fairly ordinary morning. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, then, oh, by 6 p.m. <laughs> that night, I get a call from the prime minister, right? And he's just as sweet as can be because... Uh, I said, now, I'm sure for you, this is a normal day, but for me, this is crazy that I'm just going, going, going. And he said, oh, no, Don, it's not a, a, a normal day for me to get to talk to a Nobel Prize winner. So I went, okay, that's good. <laughs> what, what was the correct answer? Um, 
have you enjoyed the ambassadorial role that it clearly thrusts upon you, whether that's travelling the world, coming to events like this, attempting to explain things which are far beyond the comprehension levels of, for example, radio journalists who are interviewing you? Is that a role you've enjoyed? Because it's, it's, it's quite a transformation. It's, it's a total... My, my life did flip upside down on October 2nd. I like my sister's explanation to the family about it, that Donna seems to be somewhere between total exhaustion and in total awe of her situation. So I'm somewhere in there. So it just depends at any moment whether or not I'm more in awe or more exhausted. <laughs> Donna Strickland, thank you for joining us. That's it for this episode of A Giant Leap, produced by Monocle24 in collaboration with Kaspersky at the Starmus Festival in Zurich. We'll be back tomorrow with more from Starmus. And remember to go back and listen to the other episodes in this series if you haven't already. To find out more about Kaspersky's mission of building a safer world, head to kaspersky.com. A Giant Leap is produced and edited by Bill Lutie and presented by me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening, and until tomorrow, goodbye.